One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with T.C. Boyle, author of the novel Blue Skies. The beauty of fiction, why I only write fiction, is it's a kind of dream that I'm having. I don't know what it's going to will be from day to day. It just kind of is self-generating and takes me places I couldn't even imagine. We'll be back with T.C. Boyle after these essential words. So June 2023 marks the 10-year anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. 
This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the interview. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with novelist T.C. Boyle, author of 31 books of fiction, including most recently Blue Skies, I Walk Between the Raindrops, Talk to Me, and Outside Looking In. Boyle received a Ph.D. in 19th century British literature and his MFA from the University of Iowa. His work has been translated into more than two dozen foreign languages. His stories have appeared in most of the major American magazines, including The New Yorker, Harper's Esquire, The Paris Review, and The Atlantic Monthly. He has also received numerous literary awards, including the Penn Faulkner Award for Best Novel of the Year and the Penn Malamud Prize in the Short Story. He currently lives near Santa Barbara with his family. His new novel, Blue Skies, focuses on a single family trying to cope with the new normal of climate change. It is told from the points of view of a mother and her two children. Kat has left coastal California to live with her fiancé in a Florida beach house. She drinks a lot, buys a pet snake to help boost her social media status, and is dealing with rising sea levels outside her door. Cooper is an entomologist living in the ever-warming, dry-as-a-bone California, where his studies are interrupted by fires and poisonous bug bites. 
Cooper and Kat's mother, Adelie, is trying her best in her home outside Santa Barbara to have a low-impact diet, meaning insects are the major food group on her plate as she tries to do her part to mitigate the impacts of climate change. All three face devastating consequences of the changing climate and how they will survive, and that is at the heart of the story. We began with T.C. Boyle sharing his interest in a climate change novel and keeping story central as a fiction writer. Yeah, well, I'm an artist. I just do what I want to do. However, I am very concerned about certain topics. And one, of course, is the extinction of the other animals, the future of our species, and uh, climate change or global warming. This is a companion piece, as you know, I think, to A Friend of the Earth, which I published in the year 2000. And it projected to 2026. And in it, we have some catastrophic weather and we have a pandemic. We have animals going extinct. But you know, now that we've arrived at that and you and I and our families have to live with it daily, I thought it would be time to project a little bit into the future. Now, Friend of the Earth went 26 years in the future till just beyond now. This one, I felt, I wanted to just show what is it like now for us to live with these conditions. And it projects maybe eight or 10 years into the future from here. I wonder if as a consumer of news about climate change for a long time, um, and maybe you've looked at some climate change organizations, the way they talk about it, if you find that there's a way that you can do it in fiction that you haven't seen elsewhere. Well, every morning when I get done reading the paper, I just want to kill myself. The news is bad and getting worse. There's no hope. We're doomed. Beyond that, though, we do have art to help redeem us. And this is what redeems me personally. I mean, I'm completely committed to my art. I've been doing it all my life. Another novel along these lines that I wrote is called When the Killing's Done. It is set right out here on the Channel Islands, on Santa Cruz Island. And it's a story, a true story that uh, I fictionalized about the removal of invasive species so that the environment on Santa Cruz Island could recover. When I went on tour for that book, I found that afterwards, talking with people, signing books, I found that a lot of the audience were environmentalists. And they said this to me. We write nonfiction, we preach to the audience, and the audience turns a deaf ear. But when you dramatize it in fiction, it can have a much greater effect. Wonderful. I'm all for that. However, I am not proselytizing. I'm not trying to force any opinion on anybody. I'm just dramatizing events and uh, allowing the audience to make its own decisions or come to its own conclusions. So something that made a lot of sense to me and was so really fascinating about the book is that you have this one family. And at the root of this family, we have Cooper, who is the son, Kat, who is the daughter, Frank, who is the father, Adelie, who's the mother. So they're living in Santa Barbara. In California, they're having the extreme of drought and really, really, really hot weather and um, fires, wildfires and big winds. But the daughter, Kat, is in, she is engaged, met a man in California, moved to the coast of Florida, and she lives with him there, like right on the beach. And she's experiencing floods and big rains. So as I was reading, I was like, yes, like these two coasts are such juicy places to set that. So was that clear to you when you started the book that that's where you wanted to set it? Yes, of course. Uh, 
the irony here of us being parched and having the terror of wildfires every year, uh, as opposed to my friends in Florida who have to worry about being washed out to sea, and in fact, the entire state being underwater eventually. It just seemed like um, it brings home the idea of climate change quite forcefully. And, and the Floridians you know, may read about us in the paper and say, tisk tisk, they're burning. And we look at them and we say, oh my God, they're, they're drowning. Um, so I wanted to put the two together. And it occurred to me that Pat um, uh, gets to live in a beach house, which she could never afford because her boyfriend's mother died and left it to him. So they immediately pack up their bags and move to Florida. But what greets them there? A lot of floods and taking a skiff out of her door sometimes and their car being, you know, flooded with water. So you go back and forth and you have three points of view, really. You're telling us Kat's story. You're telling us Cooper's story, the son, and you're telling us Adelie's story. And we'll talk a little bit about each. But we open on Kat. And Kat is, she's young. She seems like she's in her young 20s, maybe. She's married. She's pretty obsessed with being a social media influencer. And she's walking down the street. She drinks a lot, way too much. And is, I would say she's pretty self-aware of what's going on. But she's kind of like a fun girl. And it opens and she decides to buy a snake. And she goes into a store and she buys a python, a Burmese python, because she she's interested in it. She thinks it's beautiful, but it also will be really good for her social media influences. I'm curious about why you chose a snake. And if you talk a little bit, can talk a little bit about her character and who she is. And then I'll tell you my thought about the snake. Mm. Well, I, I love your characterization of her. Yes, uh, we like her. We get her point of view. She's the heroine of the book. But she is somewhat thoughtless and frivolous, like many people in our society, and and sees this snake. She's shopping, you know, as if she were shopping for clothing or jewelry, and she thinks it will bring a lot of attention to her if she sits at a cafe or a bar with this wrapped around her neck. And maybe she'll even get one for her husband, too, and they can show off a little bit. What are the consequences of that? Her brother, the entomologist, certainly is outraged when he finds out about it. And furthermore, as I'm sure everybody listening knows, uh, the Burmese pythons have got loose in Florida, let loose by, um, by people uh, who kept them as pets and then they get too big. And also there was a hurricane that destroyed a breeding facility for them. They don't belong here. They're invasive species. They have decimated all of the mammalian species in the Everglades, everything deer, rats, muskrats, everything, gone. And they're starting to eat the alligators too. So she knows none of this. She's oblivious to it, as so many of us are oblivious to what we do uh, environmentally. And I just kept thinking, because that is like on the first page, she's buying the snake. And I kept thinking about Chekhov when he says, like, if you have a gun in the first act, it has to go off in the third and I kept thinking, oh boy, if there's a snake in the first act, what is going to happen? And I wondered if you thought about that. Yeah, of course. A snake in a bag is just like uh, Chekhov's gun on the mantelpiece. Uh, it's interesting. I'm starting a new book now and just trying to feel my way. I always work instinctively. I don't know what it's going to be. So for a book like this, I observed a lot of material, particularly about insects. And I went out into the field, as I said, with, with entomologists and I learned as much as I could. 
But then the beauty of fiction, why I only write fiction, is it's a kind of dream that I'm having. I don't know what it's going to will be from day to day. It just kind of is self-generating and takes me places I couldn't even imagine. So what is that like to write instinctively? And how does your logical mind work with your instinctual mind? Hmm, what a great question. Um, so I wanted to be a musician. I went to music school, flunked my audition. I wound up being in a, in a rock band for a little bit. Um, music, especially if you're the singer in a band, is 99% pure emotion, maybe 1% controlling mind, the right key, et cetera. Um, writing fiction is a kind of dream parallel to that. Maybe 90% is your controlling mind, but 10% is also this complete opening of the soul. Um, you don't know where you are. You don't know what you're doing. It's just this fierce inner concentration. And that's the joy of it. So um, I roll with it. And my logical mind will be doing the revision the next day and making little discoveries of where it's going in terms of theme and even in terms of plot. I don't know. I'll, I'll find out. Do you feel like there's something about your instinct that has become like an electrical current that has gotten stronger over the years? Meaning like when you first started writing, maybe it felt more timid or you weren't exactly sure when it was there, but now it's like this live wire that you can just tune into and it it is just maybe more certain for you that you can follow it? I don't know. I don't know. Each work and each period of your life is different. I will say that uh, I think I have a larger command of what I'm doing than when I was beginning. When I was beginning, I was much more interested in language and design than in character. And I'm interested in all of that still, but you know, then I began to write novels and to develop characters. It's hard to say. I hope that uh, I'm producing mature work and I'm you know, using all the experience that I've gained as an, a working artist to produce, continue to produce great works of art. I mean, that's what it's about. That's why I do it. That's why I've never compromised. That's why, by the way, I've never worked for anybody. I've never done anything else. I've never written anything with the idea of, wow, this will sell. I never cared about that. Uh, luckily, you know, an audience came and followed me along and, you know, that pays my bills. Great. But uh, I'm just an explorer. I'm just going to think about and write about what I want to discover. And um, I never know how it's going to go or what it will be. That's so interesting that you that you're doing this very open field, because I think you said, like, if you hadn't become a writer, you would be like a, a field biologist. That is so based on like data and exactness. And so you must have that part of your brain as well. I guess there's that in there. But I didn't I failed to point out also that uh, in order to be in any of the sciences, you have to be able to do math. <laughs> so that eliminated me right there. No, the part of the field biology that I love. Uh, yes, I can take notes and I helped when I was out on Santa Cruz Island and helped jot down stuff of, of what, what we were doing in the field, which was um, checking the traps for the dwarf island foxes uh, that were being preyed upon and nobody quite knew why or how. And yes, uh, with the biologists, you take measurements and mark things down. That's okay. I can do that. 
But what I really love is to be out in a wild place, uh, especially by myself. Yeah, and you got to, I guess, vicariously live that through the character of Cooper, who is, he's called Bug Boy when he's young. He's a geek, like full-on geek, and he endures it in high school. And then he's studying um, butterflies and counting them, and his girlfriend is studying ticks. And so he's out in the field a lot counting these. And as you said, like he was really disgusted by the fact that his sister got a python and he's very supportive of his parents raising bees and having crickets to eat and eating mealworms. And um, he, in many ways, he's very opposite from Kat. He's very aware of what's going on and, and cynical, but tr- based in truth. Yes, but he is also kind of preaches and he's kind of holier than now, which is one problem that environmentalists have. They are preaching to us, so we turn a deaf ear. Um, we should talk a little bit about voodoo here, too, with regard to art and uh, this particular character, Cooper. So he is, as you suggest, dating an acarologist, a woman who studies ticks, and he goes out uh, to help her one day in the field. And they spread a white sheet and drag it through the bushes and ticks fall off and they, they pluck them up and they put them in jars and count them and study them. Um, it was a windy day. They couldn't do it. Uh, they were out there for a while. It was frustrating. They came back and uh, they went dancing at a club and uh, they were about to go to bed. He went into the bathroom, took off his shirt, and he realized that on his forearm, there was a tiniest tick larva, you know, the size of a, a mole, much uh, the size of a grain of pepper, even. And uh, the chapter ended there. He said, well, you know, Mari, the girlfriend, she's going to be happy. I've had I, I a tick. Within a week or two of that, I was out in those mountains there. And I came back and my right forearm really hurt. Uh, as if I had slammed it against something. And this was a giveaway. I rolled up my sleeve, and yes, there was a tick, just as with Cooper, on my right forearm. And it, I've had this problem once before. I, I, by the way, I've had Lyme disease several times. But you don't feel anything. This is cellulitis, and it can be life-threatening. It's a very dangerous skin infection transmitted by the tick. It was so amazing that the character got bitten and then I got bitten. It, it didn't happen that I got bitten first. <laughs> um, so, of course, I inflicted the worst on Cooper. And fortunately, because I have a good doctor, this was COVID. So I had to show him my arm, uh, the, um, the telemedicine. Um, it was difficult. It was difficult to get rid of this infection. And uh, it, it was touch and go for a bit there. Is it like really heavy? Antibiotics? Yes. Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah, well, I can't help going out into nature. And, you know, nature, wow, you know, in the Darwinian scheme of things, so a tick bites us and uh, takes a little meal from us. They're welcome to it. I don't mind. But the bugs have come along for the ride because they see the opportunity of uh, spreading their disease or their their population throughout our population. That's where I draw the line. So basically, it progresses to a very bad outcome for Cooper. So Uh you had had him 
be bit by the tick and then you got bit, but had you, did you know what the outcome would be or did that come from your experience and thinking, what if we took this well, all the way? Yes. Yes. My experience. Absolutely. <laughs> I got lucky. So he didn't. You know, one of my heroes is Evelyn Wall. Uh, and I read him as a kid passionately. He inflicts all sorts of comedic disasters on his characters. He is one of the great satirists of all times. I think of A Handful of Dust, for instance. The limitation, though, of course, with satire is that it makes fun of something brilliantly and beautifully, and we love it, but it doesn't go any deeper than that. I hope that the kind of satire that you see in a book like this goes much deeper and explores some of these. topics that we've been talking about. What's the line that makes it go deeper? How do you know? Well, because again, we talked about my early career, my early stories, pick up my first book of stories, Descent of Men. They're very satiric and funny and they do have, they do deal with um, real life things and environmental things, but um, they don't move you. You know, they don't move you in any way. I don't think, uh, aside from what satire does, you laugh. It's funny. Uh, it, it it holds up a, a kind of behavior for ridicule. I think in my more mature work, uh, I'm able to get it both ways, you know, to mm-hmm. have that satiric effect, but also to write a book. That, uh, talk to me, my last novel as well, where you get the effect of drama, but you also have an overlay of this kind of native-born wise-ass, which is who I am. <laughs> I think for me, if you're interested, of what makes it deeper is that it's kind of like the consequences. It's like, in a way, you are like making fun of the extreme environmentalist or the extreme, not the cat is, but like the sorority girl or whatever, who's drinking and cares how they look and being a social media influencer. But I think what brings it to the next level is the consequences and where the power lies. Because in the end, for all of your characters, the power is in the earth. The power is in the animal. The power is in the impacts of climate change. Does that make sense to you? I think it's absolutely brilliant. And we should write that on the cover of the book. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But we don't want to give it away too much. (laughs) I think you're right. Absolutely. You know, we know that something catastrophic happens with Cooper after he gets bit. You know, Kat is facing her own catastrophes of of her own making. Um, And then Adelie, the mother... We see her in her house in Santa Barbara that she's lived in for a long time. Her husband, Frank, is a doctor, and she really wants to do her best. So she does get crickets, and she uses cricket flour, and she gets mealworms, and she's trying to realize that the future source of protein is bugs and that she cooks with them. She often gets foiled because of other environmental factors or things that might kill off her stock of food that she has or um, kill off the source. But she's really, really trying to be this conscientious person who's who's older, trying to catch up. Um, tell me more about her. Now that you put it in that way, I, I think you can see the three characters as sort of different positions that are inside of many of us. Yeah, the obliviousness to the environment on one hand with, with Kat, the, the the kind of hectoring that you get from uh, the entomologist character, Cooper, and the mother who, like so many of us, are aware and want to ameliorate the conditions that are destroying the life on this planet. Um, I like her, and I had the first... She is introduced to the second chapter from her point of view, and she is preparing a dinner party. And the dinner party is going to be uh, dishes made from insects. And of course, some readers will enjoy the fact that you get recipes in there too. You know, <laughs> She, like many of us, wants to do her best and tries to do her best. But as you said earlier, quite beautifully, by the way, uh, this is the earth. These are the creatures. We are only one one species among many, and we can't control these things. Like many of us, like me, we try to do our best. Uh, When I was a boy growing up in New York, there was no sense of environmentalism. There were no limits. We lived with infinite resources. And uh, no one had ever even heard of recycling. So gradually over the years, you know, I, like many of us, have become more attuned to protecting what we have. And so I'm a fanatic of recycling. The property here is entirely devoted to nature. There's no grass. There's uh, just uh, native, as many native trees and shrubs as I can plant. I've dug a pond in the backyard for the, the creatures. Uh, the very back end of the property is zoned environmentally sensitive because it's where the monarchs come in winter to overwinter. When I moved here 30 years ago, there were thousands like confetti. Now, lucky if you see a hundred. So I try to do my little part. And yet, okay, everybody, plant milkweed. If you want to preserve the monarchs, everybody plant milkweed in your yard. But it seems as if it's so little. It's such a little gesture. And 
and we're so overwhelmed by the negative. Yeah, Adelie, she just wants to do her best and do her part. And I'm curious about when you write in three points of view, one of the things when I was maybe three quarters of the way through, I was like, I am so curious on which point of view he's going to end this on. And I'm wondering if that was um, something you really thought about it or if it just came more organically. And then talking about how you sort of manage, like it's a symphony, right, between all these three points of view, how you direct that symphony. Yeah, of course, I've used every conceivable (laughs) way of telling a narrative throughout my stories and novels. Uh, Three points of view... Uh, very close third-person points of view, almost like a first-person. And by the way, I did use uh, conflicting first-person narrators in the Terranauts just as an experiment, but it's more natural to do it, I think, as third-person, so the author is controlling it, the uh, overarching voice is controlling it. I like to play them off one another and sometimes to show the same scene from different points of view. I think it opens it up and allows the reader to get a, a, a broader perspective on what's happening. As to how it worked out finally, uh, again, it's it's organic. It's just as I'm progressing day by day, it inevitably went there. I like ending with Otley, and there is a moment of grace at the end because it's, as we said earlier, this situation we're facing with regard to destroying the earth is is critical and it's depressing as all hell do you think grace is necessary for fiction or grace was necessary for this story uh, each story is different and i would never make any pronouncements about uh, anything anybody should do in fiction everybody does what he or she wants um i hope that it uh it works in this particular case but i don't know i don't know um I love stuff, too, that is purely grim, you know, beginning to end. In fact, I hate sunshine. I love a cloudy day. I love rain. And I love the blues. The sadder, the better. As as a reader, I would guess, I mean, we talked about your interest in climate change and what, you know, some of what brought you to the page there. But as a reader, the thing that struck me, and I was wondering if you started with here, is voice. I'm wondering if you heard like a voice in your head that you followed with your instinct you know some people start with image some people start with a whole outline where did you start well i don't have any outline that's for sure uh i will do some research uh sufficiently take a big notebook full of notes and then completely lose them and forget all about them because a voice starts talking to me and i follow it Uh, It's as simple as that, or as hard as that, because what if it doesn't start talking to you, then you're in deep trouble. So did you start with Cat? Was that the first voice? Yes, yes, yes. Everything I've I've ever written, all of my books, everything you ever see, it it progresses from the first sentence, and it's exactly, almost exactly the way I wrote it is the way it appears on the page. You know, so much of this book, it's clear to the reader to think about what's happening to the climate, to think about how it's affecting us. But there's also another interpersonal part. I mean, I want to say especially with Kat, but Cooper has his own problems with committing to relationships and 
accepting himself, especially when he was younger. And you have a line kind of early on, and it's in Kat's perspective, where you write, there was a sadness to life that everyone had to deal with in one way or another. So I was curious, I don't know if you remember writing this line, but that was something deeper, more existential, more personal to our human journey. Cat is fairly oblivious, mostly, but she uh, she can have the kinds of thoughts we all have. Uh, you know, we're living in this illusion that our brains are controlling the world. And I, I guess they are, because uh, I see it in my way, and I create it in my way, uh, as you do. Again, we are animals. And we are no different from any other animal in terms of what we're going to owe to existence and to the earth. I don't know about you, but things have been really shitty for me since I was a zygote. You know, it's definitely a journey. (laughs) I think if we think too hard, we'll never get off the couch, you know? My salvation is in art, in making my art, in listening to music, read books, and in particular, most particularly, being in nature, especially, as I said earlier, alone. I don't want to go hiking with a bunch of people and chatter away. I like to go entirely by myself, especially if I can find some wild places uh, where there's nobody around except me and the ticks. Uh, I need this. I need to connect to to the deeper elements of what it means to be alive. Are you afraid of anything in nature? Yeah, death. (laughs) Death. Death and rot, uh, which comes to us all. As far as going out into the wilderness out here, uh, or in the high Sierras, where I've gone for many, many years, um, I've had encounters with the mountain lion a couple of times, with bears. But nothing was ever frightening or horrible about it. Uh, It's always kind of magical. I'm going to go into the woods. I'm done with work for the day, and I'm out there in the woods, particularly up in the Sierras. Um, I just go outside the house and, and walk. There are no trails, no nothing. I'm just walking in uh, the Squire National Forest. Uh, and like a child, I'm not remembering the scientific names of this shrub or that tree or that bird. Uh, I don't care. I'm just looking at a vista and saying, oh, wow, what's this? And observing and being part of it. How do you feel about snakes? Well, snakes are not my totem animal. The fish is my totem animal. And I don't know why that is, but since I was a small boy, I have been obsessed with fish. Uh, Perfectly happy with snakes, but I've never had a pet snake, whereas I've had many fish. And as I said, I dug a pond in the backyard and the fish are very happy out there. Um, I am fascinated by all forms of life particularly animal life. I can't get enough of them. I love them. So um, I've had some encounters with the rattlesnake out there in the woods, but nothing ever frightening or bad. More like, wow, look at that. I have a story in my most recent collection, and it's called These Are the Circumstances. And I picked it up from a news account of a guy. uh, He's out with his wife in the backyard, and they see a rattlesnake there. And he gets the shovel and he whacks its head off. And then a few minutes later, he comes back. He says, you know, this is a really beautiful thing. I think I'm going to put it in a jar and come out the and keep it. And he picks it up 
big mistake because it was still able to bite and it's the killing bite because there's no holding back at this point. And uh, he winds up, you know, going into shock and being taken to the hospital and, and, and losing a finger or two. So I wrote that story just to explore what that might be like and what that might mean. And again, what oblivious to nature, um, um, obliviousness to nature might say about um, our chances of surviving. So did you do any research eating mealworms, grasshoppers, or any other bugs? I have, yes. What have you eaten? Uh, crickets, mainly the, the usual cricket flour and so on. To each his own. <laughs> I'd rather have a nice salad, you know, <laughs> and a piece of bread, but not cricket bread. What, what I loved is that uh, one of the problems when you eat crickets a lot in your diet is you develop cricket breath. And, you know, this is terrible when you're dating and uh, you got to get close and kiss somebody and, and they pull back and say, wait, you have cricket breath. <laughs> I don't know what it's like or what it, what it smells like or anything else, but it's just so hilarious. This is one of the things you must be aware of. If you're going to be eating a lot of crickets, you might develop cricket breath. <laughs> Needs to be a disclaimer on the cricket wings. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Is there anything else that you want to say about the book that we didn't talk about before I get to the final questions? Um, boy, what a question. Well, as with my, all my other books, the, the people who read them know, um, it's, it's a good ride. It will completely absorb you. That's what it's supposed to do. But it's not calculated in any way. and. Uh, what you get from it, not simply in terms of emotions and characters and so on, but in terms of the questions we're talking about here today, environmental questions, uh, are left to you uh, on your own. Again, I'm not going to preach. I will preach certainly in a forum like this or if I'm on stage or I write an essay, but fiction isn't supposed to do that. Fiction is supposed to be a seduction. It's supposed to take you for a ride. And uh, I hope that that's what people will get from this one. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So, Mitzi, this is the ending of one of the great novels of all time and one of my favorites. And when you asked me to do the show, I just happened to have been rereading it. So I'm going to read you the last couple of paragraphs of Coetzia's Disgrace. And to set this up, the... Uh, Protagonist, David Lurie, has <laughs> had a lot of catastrophe befall him and a lot of disgrace in his life. And he winds up in South Africa. Uh, he winds up out in a remote place with this woman, a friend of his daughter named Bev Shaw. And she's got a big heart and she uh, runs the animal clinic, which means they have to put down a lot of animals daily. And David assists her, uh, and he makes sure that they are uh, burned up properly. So at the very end, there's one dog, and uh, it, it was crippled in an accident, lopes around, and he's become attached to it, and it has become attached to him. But nonetheless, as with all the other strays, it has to be put down. What the dog will not be able to work out, not in a month of Sundays, he thinks. What his nose will not tell him. 
is how one can enter what seems to be an ordinary room and never come out again. Something happens in this room, something unmentionable. Here, the soul is yanked out of the body. Briefly, it hangs about in the air, twisting and contorting. Then it is sucked away and is gone. It will be beyond him, this room that is not a room, but a hole where one leaks out of existence. It gets harder all the time, Bev Shaw once said. Harder, yet easier, too. One gets used to things getting harder. One ceases to be surprised that what used to be as hard as hard can be grows harder yet. He could save the young dog if he wishes for another week. But a time must come. It cannot be evaded. When he will have to bring him to Bev Shaw in her operating room, perhaps he will carry him in his arms. Perhaps he'll do that for him. And caress him and brush back the fur so that the needle can find the vein and whisper to him and support him in the moment when, bewilderingly, his legs buckle. And then, when the soul is out, hold him up and pack him away in his bag. And the next day, wheel the bag into the flames and see that it is burnt, burnt up. He would do all that for him when his time comes. It would be little enough, less than little, nothing. He crosses the surgery. Was that the last? Asks Bev Shaw. One more. He opens the cage door. Come, he says, bends, opens his arms. The dog wags its crippled rear, sniffs his face, licks his cheeks, his lips, his ears. He does nothing to stop him. Come. Bearing him in his arms like a lamb, he re-enters the surgery. I thought you would save him for another week, says Bev Shaw. Are you giving him up? Yes, I am giving him up. Do you want to share why you chose that? Anything more about it? <laughs> it makes me want to burst into tears. Uh, I love Ketsia, and I love this, uh, of all his books. It's one of the great novels of all time. Um, he writes very cold, remote, emotionless characters. And um, he writes, particularly in this book, in a stripped-back, bare, declarative prose that cumulatively can be extremely powerful. Just reading that to you, I feel like bursting into tears, you know? It's, uh, it's beautiful. And I'd selected it because, as I say, I just happened to be reading it. I re read it several times over the course of my life. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you like? As with what Ketsia did with, with the dog, uh, we got a little bit of the dog's point of view, or filtered through David Lurie. Uh, I have written directly from the point of view of another species uh, in alternate chapters in my last novel, Talk to Me, which deals with 
the experiments, uh, particularly in the 70s and 80s, when we tried to teach apes our language, uh, you know, which is uh, doomed to fail because they have their own language already. It's a gestural language. But nonetheless, I wanted to know what it would be like to be one of these experimental animals. And so I've written from the point of view of the hero of the book, who is an ape named Sam, and he has been used in these experiments. And by the way, with chimps, when they uh, become adolescents, the experiments are over because they are very powerful, dangerous animals and they cannot be controlled anymore. And so it's an animal with as bright as a three and a half year old child that needs to be locked up for the rest of its life. And they live to be 50 years old and they are, are they're, they're, well, they're given everything and then like, like, like babies until they reach a certain age and then they're just locked away. So in this chapter, it's Sam's point of view. He's completely bewildered. He has gone from the house. He's always known the mother, human mother. He's always known. And now he finds himself in this facility. And the words that I am going to hit heavily here are emphasized because these are words of his own vocabulary. Key lock out. He didn't have a word for words, or not yet anyway, but he knew words all the same. He knew key. He knew lock. He knew out. He was a prisoner, though he didn't have a word for that either. And even if he did, it would have been meaningless. What did a word, any word, have to do with this situation, in this place, in the onrushing, unstoppable cataract of now, and the fear, afraid, that came with it? He had diarrhea, which existed as a pain in the gut, a stench, a hot, wet squirt of shit that needed no terminology and no afterthought. He wanted his blanket, a blanket, any blanket. He was cold. He was distraught. He rocked from side to side. He stared at nothing. He plucked the hairs from his arms, his chin, the crown of his head, trichotillomania, and he didn't know that term either. How could he? And what would it matter if he did? Would that get him out of here? Sleep was his only release, and it came to him in a blaze of shuffled images. The bathroom light so bright it was like the sun in the sky, a trickle of blood-warm water in the tub, and the face of the one who meant the most to him whose name he'd invented in the gesture of pinching his right nipple the way he pinched hers when she was with him in the bed and they were both warm and his shirt was on the floor. But then he woke. He always woke. To the screams and the reek and his own diarrhea and the food he refused and the din of flesh pounding on metal. When he was thirsty, thirst came to him as a sensation, pre-verbal, non-verbal, and he picked up his cup and drained it. He didn't think, drink. Didn't sign, drink. He just drank until the cup was empty, that is, and no one came to fill it for him. Then the word was there, and the sign, the gesture, thumb to the lower lip, descriptor and request, both. And when no one listened, when the cup went unfilled, and the box, the cage, the prison, he measured over and over with the length and breadth of his body, spoke despair to him, spoke rage, he screamed, he screamed, he screamed. Do you want to share any more about that? Ah, well... Um, it was a challenge to me, uh, and the motivating factor for the book was to try to, in, in addition to the other points of view uh, in the book, uh, to give the point of view of a very intelligent animal, one of our fellow apes, great apes on the earth. Uh, again, you can see how this 
you know, fits in with all of uh, my work in, in, in these arenas. Uh, um, and with the Ketsia passage I just read, um, where do we get the right to use the animals this way? And why should we impose our language on them? What does it matter? And of course, these experiments came about because people thought, we still do, we still hope that if we could unlock their thinking, maybe there's some essential secret about life that we could learn from another species. Where do you write? Exactly where you're looking at me, my dear, right here at my desk. Uh, and I am surrounded by windows and greenery. Everywhere I look, there's greenery. Um, Ray Carver said that he wrote looking at a blank wall because he didn't want any distraction. I think that's great. Uh, however, I am distracted. <laughs> I, mean, I see that the hawk sometimes comes to this tree and eats something. Uh, I see the squirrels. Uh, I, I see some traffic on the street. It's okay. It doesn't really break the spill. And I've always composed on a, a keyboard all my life. I never have handwritten anything. So I do need to be someplace where I can be comfortable with my keyboard. And sometimes I am traveling and I have a laptop, but I do like to uh, be aware of the world around me. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Simple question, two words, the bar. Who do you show you work to first to get feedback? Nobody. Nobody ever sees my work until it's presented to my agent. He's my first reader. However, that said, when I'm working on something, I will read the passage that day aloud to my wife right here in this room. Not so much so that she can criticize it or even say, oh, great, but so I can hear the rhythm of how it sounds aloud. And this is such an interesting thing, too, uh, mentally. When I'm reading it aloud, performing it for her, I see something entirely different. And I'm able to make leaps ahead, even in terms of plot, of what it means and what it is. Whereas I might necessar not necessarily be doing that when I'm just rereading it on the screen. It's a very interesting process. And as you know, I think um, I love to perform stories on stage aloud mine and other people's too. I, I just love that because it brings me back to my mother's voice. She taught me how to read. She read aloud to me. Um, our eighth grade teacher uh, read aloud to us. I, I really love that. I love uh, uh, speaking of stories. Uh, I love all of the formats where stories are performed because of the magic of them. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, in the beginning, uh, it was simply cannibalism. But now I'm a little more mature. And uh, I piss on my critics from a great height. Uh, also, uh, I double down. Um, this may come as a surprise to you because I've published so much work in The New Yorker over the years, uh, one of their regular contributors. But before I published for the first story in The New Yorker, I sent them 50 stories that were rejected, 50. It was a different regime then. They were looking for different kinds of stories, not the kind I was writing. Regime changed, and I began to sell them stories. I mean, it's not, you don't lose faith. You're an artist. You're going to do it whether anybody wants it or not. That's, that's your life. And what is your favorite word? Alapidgian, having beautiful buttocks. 
because for all intents and purposes, I was born without buttocks. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. You're welcome, Mitzi. It's a joy. If you like today's show with T.C. Boyle, author of the novel Blue Skies, check out my interview with Lydia Yuknovich on her novel Thrust. We talked about storytelling, asking what-if questions to help fuel the writing, how story threads cross and weave together, and the after effects of climate change in a near future world. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Alice Elliott Dark, Elizabeth Graver, and Hernan Diaz. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.